Chapter 5 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Such was the parentage of the child who was born on 16th October 1854 at number 1 Merrion Square, in the mournful city of Dublin, whose advent, because he was a boy, was a disappointment to his mother and who for a long time after his birth was treated as a girl, talked to as a girl, dressed as a girl. His father did not share his wife's caprice, and for his second son selected names of singular virility. These names were so chosen as to proclaim to the world the lad's close association by blood with the history of Ireland. Oscar is good Celtic. It is a name closely connected with Irish legend and record, and here another negation is necessary. Oscar Wilde was not the godson of the Duke of Ostergirtland, although Speranza allowed it to be understood that it had been after this princely friend of the family that the boy was called. People living in Dublin who remember the christening and all the circumstances connected with that ceremony have stated that at the time of Oscar's birth, the Wilds were not acquainted with the gentleman who is now the King of Sweden. The myth was one of those schwarmerein on the part of Lady Wilde, to which reference has already been made. It is certain that before Oscar's birth, the personality of the poet-prince must have greatly occupied Speranza's thoughts, for the personal resemblance between Oscar Wilde and the King of Sweden was one which struck everyone who knew the two men. More particularly was this resemblance a striking one between the prince as a student at Uppsala and Oscar Wilde as a student at Oxford. On page 39 of Dr Joseph Link's biography of King Oscar, Konung Oscar, Adolf Bonnier, Stockholm, there appeared a portrait of the young duke, which vividly reminds one of Oscar Wilde at the same age. However, it appears to be the fact that the child's name was chosen by his father, who wanted him to have a good ancient Irish name. For the same reason, he also caused his son to be christened Fingal and O'Flaherty, the latter from those wild O'Flahertys from whom Cromwell's soldiers, in an addendum to the litany, prayed God to deliver them. At the same time, the additional name of Wills was bestowed upon the boy, the motive of this selection was the same. It was to affirm his Irish nationality. The Wills family were wealthy county people who had been settled for over 300 years in Ireland. It was a General Wills of this family who, with General Carpenter, crushed the legitimate hopes of the loyal party at the Battle of the Boyne. With this family, the Wilds were closely connected and in a near degree Oscar Wilde was cousin to that gifted man, W.G. Wills, the dramatist, painter and poet. On the two cousins, the wonderful of dramaturgy had descended together with an allied strain of eccentricity, which, however, differed in its developments in the two favoured yet unhappy kinsmen. The second son of William Wilde by his marriage to Jane Francesca Elgie was accordingly christened Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde. In his youth and early manhood, he was proud of these sounding patronymics. Later on, he discarded the use of them. They irritated him. To refer to them was to provoke his great anger. They classified him, they labelled him. 
They wrote him down as de son village, and this was intolerable to him, to his cosmopolitan sense, to his disdain for partisanships, politics and protestations. He had a strong aversion from what was local in interest, from what was outré and self-assertive, and in all these ways his Irish Christian names offended his taste. For the rest, Oscar Wilde never willingly placed himself on the losing side in any division of men. Irishmen and Irish matters have always been as unpopular in the London society to which he aspired as they are in lower spheres of the Anglo-Saxon mob. And although Oscar Wilde never denied his nationality, he took particular care not to let it transpire. In some circles in Dublin, it is held that he was an ardent Irish patriot, that the mantle that Speranza wore in 48 had descended upon his broad shoulders, that it was this very pride as an Irishman which prevented him from fleeing from a British court of justice when the opportunity offered itself to him so to do. If this was so, he was able to dissimulate here also with astonishing skill. It was amongst luxurious surroundings that the child was reared. His father's house is one of the best houses in the best part of Dublin. And good houses in the Irish capital are very good indeed. They are mute witnesses, as are also the fine broad streets today of former opulence and splendour. There are few houses in London or other big English cities which can compare in comfort, amplitude, elegance and decoration with a very large number of the Dublin bourgeois palaces. Number 1 Merrion Square, which is a corner house, is situated in one of the pleasantest and most convenient parts of the town. From the front, the windows overlook the Merrion Square gardens. There is a large garden at the back, and on the right is Lincoln Place. The house, which is now occupied by a dentist, is painted red on the Lincoln Place front, and the windows which look out on this side are of an oriental style of architecture. It is a big, solid, substantial bourgeois house which makes some pretensions to originality and artisticness. It looks the ideal residence for a successful professional man who stands well at court, but it hardly strikes one as the fit dwelling place for a revolutionary poetess, or as the birthplace of a man of genius who, over shifting, lifting deeps and by circuitous routes, was to come to a deathbed so forlorn and sombre. No tablet yet records the fact that in this house was born the author of The Soul of Man or of De Profundis. But on the tablets of the people's memory, that record is engraved. Just opposite the house, at the corner of the gardens, is a cab stand, and amongst the drivers is an elderly man who, when he sees any stranger looking up at number one Merrion Square, touches his hat and says that his honour is no doubt looking at the house where Sir Oscar Wilde was born. The stranger may answer that he did not know that the poet had been knighted also, and then the Jarvie says that, sure and he was, that he was a great poet besides, and that as a lad he had often driven the gentleman. He speaks of it with pride, as a thing to be remembered, and he has nothing but good things to say of the young man who was kind and genial, and who paid handsomely for each set down.
Oscar Wilde was always a good friend to cab drivers. At the time of his trial, he was known as one of the best riders in Chelsea amongst the cabmen. He must, in his opulent days, have spent many hundred pounds a year in cabs. At one period, he used to take a cab by the day, and the first address that he used to give to the driver was the Burlington Arcade, where there was a florist's shop, where every day he fetched for himself a buttonhole flower costing half a guinea, and another costing half a crown for his cabman for the day. The Dublin cabman does not recollect that his young patron had any partiality for buttonhole flowers, but he remembers that even in those days, Oscar Wilde would not drive in a cab which was drawn by a white horse, as he considered this most unlucky. For the rest, he speaks of the young man, as of all the Wilde family, with respect and regret. It was a sad day, he says, when they went across the water. As children, the brothers William and Oscar were great friends, and Oscar Wilde in afterlife frequently spoke of their mutual attachment. I had a toy bear, he once related, of which I was very fond indeed, so fond that I used to take it to bed with me, and I thought that nothing could make me more unhappy than to lose my bear. Well, one day Willie asked me for it, and I was so fond of Willie that I gave it to him, I remember, without a pang. Afterwards, however, the enormity of the sacrifice I had made impressed itself upon me. I considered that such an act merited the greatest gratitude and love in return, and whenever Willie crossed me in any way, I used to say, Willie, you don't deserve my bear, give me back my bear. And for years afterwards, after we had grown up, whenever we had a slight quarrel, I used to say the same, Willie, you don't deserve my bear, you must give me back my bear. He used to laugh at this recollection. A third child was born to Lady Wilde, the daughter she had longed for. She was like a golden ray of sunshine dancing about our home, Oscar Wilde used to say of this sister. She did not live to reach womanhood. Her loss was the greatest grief that Lady Wilde knew until... One of Oscar Wilde's most beautiful poems, a requiescat, which appears in his first volume of poems, is dedicated to the girl's memory. He writes of her, She hardly knew she was a woman, so softly she grew. There is one verse which renders a thought which must have come to all who mourn the dead. Coffin board, heavy stone, lie on her breast. I vex my heart alone. She is at rest. Already as a very small boy, Oscar gave proof of great cleverness. A great novelist of Irish birth relates how, as a boy, he accompanied his mother to call on Lady Wilde, who was just then staying at a country house on the borders of Mayo and Galway, where Sir William Wilde had an estate. The caller asked Lady Wilde about the boys, and she answered, Willie is all right, but Oscar is wonderful, wonderful. He can do anything. He was then nine years of age. In an article which Ernest Lajeunesse wrote about him after his death in Paris, the French critic referring to Wilde's wonderful knowledge and capacity, said, Il savait tout. Indeed, few men have so impressed their contemporaries with the feeling of omniscience. 
In a biographical notice of Oscar Wilde, which appeared in 1891, is the following passage, referring to his early education. Quote, the son of two remarkable people, Mr Wilde had a remarkable upbringing. From his earliest childhood his principal companions were his father and mother and their friends. Now wandering about Ireland with the former in quest of archaeological treasures, now listening in Lady Wilde's salon to the wit and thought of Ireland, the boy, before his eighth year, had learned the ways to the shores of old romance, had seen all the apples plucked from the tree of knowledge, and had gazed with wondering eyes into the younger day. This upbringing suited his idiosyncrasy. Indeed, with his temperament, it is impossible to conceive what else could have been done with him. He had, of course, tutors, and the run of a library containing the best literature, and went to a royal school. But it was at his father's dinner table, and in his mother's drawing-room, that the best of his early education was obtained. Another experience, unusual to boyhood, had a powerful formative influence. He travelled much in France and Germany, becoming acquainted with the works of Heine and Goethe, but more especially with French literature and the French temperament. It was in France, at an age when other boys are grinding at grammar or cricket, that Oscar Wilde began to realise in some measure what he was. There he found himself for the first time in a wholly congenial environment. The English temperament, there are those who deny that such a thing exists, like sweet bells jangled out of tune and harsh, responds indifferently to the aesthetic. In France, Mr Wilde found everywhere exquisite susceptibility to beauty, and found also that he himself, an Irish Celt, possessed this susceptibility in all its intensity. French and Greek literature were the two earliest passions of his artistic life. Unquote. That he was familiar with German literature as a boy is not the case, and it is also doubtful if the French environment revealed to the lad anything within himself of which he was not aware. There is no special susceptibility to beauty in France. Indeed, in few countries is more profound indifference displayed by the great mass of the people to the wonderful natural and artistic beauty with which the country is endowed. In Oscar Wilde's youth, the very beauties which he was afterwards to celebrate in periods so eloquent were the derision of the majority. As a young man, Oscar Wilde used to echo the foolish contempt of Lamartine, which was the fashionable attitude of the cognoscenti in France in his boyhood. Lamartine, expounded by him, appeared a French Martin Tupper. And this is but an instance. His visits to France seem to have laid the foundations of that great knowledge of the French language which he displayed in the writing of Salome. As to the writing and language of this play, the best French critics are unanimous in expressing their wonder that any foreigner could have acquired such a mastery of the French language, its beauties and intricacies. But as Ernest La Jeunesse has said, il savait tout. French was so familiar to him that, as he used to say, he often thought in French. As a preparation for a literary career in England, this was not a good thing. The most successful writer knows only the tongue in which he writes. Linguistic attainment spoils the mother language for the unilingual reader. 
the average Englishman cannot follow the writer who at times thinks in a tongue which is not his own. He revolts against similes, deductions, points of view which are not English. The man whose books translate well into foreign languages is not likely to be very highly appreciated in his own country. That is why, perhaps, it has been said that posterity begins at the frontier. There are exceptions, of course. Gérard de Nerval's translation of Goethe's Faust was such a beautiful work that Goethe himself wrote to the French poet to compliment him on the authorship of the French Faust. But Faust is in itself an exception. It is what the Germans call a Weltstück, a term, by the way, which they have also applied to Salome. Shakespeare reads badly in foreign translations, even where the son of Hugo, under Victor Hugo's guidance, writes the version. Dickens never appealed to foreign nations in any degree equivalently to his wonderful influence on his countrymen. It was an artificial atmosphere in which the lad, Oscar, was reared. It is wonderful that he escaped that taint of precocity, for which the English dictionary has another and a less euphonious term. It is more wonderful still that, until his inherent madness broke out, he escaped the taint of moral laxness which infected the air of his father's house. Here, high thinking did not go hand in hand with plain living. The house was a hospitable one. It was a house of opulence and carouse, of late suppers and deep drinking, of careless talk and example. His father's gallantries were the talk of Dublin. Even his mother, although a woman of spotless life and honour, had a loose way of talking which might have been full of danger to her sons. A saying of hers is still remembered in Dublin, which gives an echo of the way in which her attitude of revolt against the accepted and the commonplace prompted her to mischievous talk. There has never been a woman yet in this world who wouldn't have given the top off the milk jug to some man if she had met the right one. The mother's salon, the father's supper table, were frequented by boozy and boisterous bohemians, than whom no city more than Dublin furnishes stranger specimens. How free was the conversation which went on there in the presence of the two lads may be gathered from a remark which Oscar Wilde once made to a fellow undergraduate at Trinity College. Come home with me, he said. I want to introduce you to my mother. We have founded a society for the suppression of virtue. This statement, of course, partook of the nature of those remarks as to which a prefect of police in Paris once asked Charles Baudelaire, the poet, why a man of his genius often spoke in so foolish a way. Pour étonner les sots, answered Baudelaire. It was to astonish fools, without any doubt, that Oscar Wilde so spoke on that occasion, for there was no cleaner-lived young man than he. But his words show the prevailing moral atmosphere at home and the dangers to which he was exposed. And no doubt also that having been exposed all through his youth to the contagion of immorality, his powers of resistance against moral disease had been so weakened that when the attack came he had not the strength to overcome it. There is a great analogy between physical and mental diseases. This record should teach a lesson to parents which they would do well to lay to heart. By his father as a lad he was taught to admire the beauties of nature – 
but it did not appear in afterlife that he shared Sir William's enthusiasm. Though he wrote much and well about flowers and birds and the beauties of the land under the moving seasons, he used to describe the country as rather tedious, and to the end remained a dweller in cities. Atmospheric effects, the planets and the stars, the lights on land and sea, though he recognised their utility for poetical description, certainly never aroused emotions within him. Of Sir William, on the other hand, it is related that one night after everybody had retired to rest in the house which he owned at Howth, at the seaside near Dublin, a terrific storm having broken out overhead, he dragged a reluctant guest from his bed and up to the top of the house, there to admire with him the wonderful effects of the lightning flashes over the sea. He kept me there for nearly an hour, related this guest afterwards, and showed the greatest enthusiasm for the spectacle. I was far from sharing his excitement. It was drenching wet, and we were both lightly clad, yet he kept appealing to me to join him in saying that it was the most wonderful night that I had ever spent. Oscar held that the monotony of life spent amidst rustic surroundings was fatal to artistic production. One can only write in cities, he wrote in a letter to one of his friends. The country hanging on one walls in the grey mists of Corro, or the opal mornings that Daubigny has given us. In the same letter he speaks of the splendid whirl and swirl of life in London, his dislike for nature and the natural life as contrasted to artificiality, and that mode of existence which claims to be the outcome of the highest civilization, developed as he grew older. The utterances of Vivian, through whose mouth Oscar Wilde speaks, where he decries nature in the decay of lying, are not so much brilliant paradox. They are the sincere expressions of Oscar Wilde's feeling on the subject, the passage from the first essay in Intentions may be quoted here. Quote, Vivian. Enjoy nature? I am glad to say that I have entirely lost that faculty. People tell us that art makes us love nature more than we loved her before, that it reveals her secrets to us, and that after a careful study of Corro and Constable, we see things in her that had escaped our observation. My own experience is that the more we study art, the less we care for nature. What art really reveals to us is nature's lack of design, her curious crudities, her extraordinary monotony, her absolutely unfinished condition. Nature has good intentions, of course, but as Aristotle once said, she cannot carry them out. When I look at a landscape, I cannot help seeing all its defects, it is fortunate for us, however, that nature is so imperfect, as otherwise we should have had no art at all. Art is our spirited protest, our gallant attempt to teach nature her proper place. As for the infinite variety of nature, that is a pure myth. Unquote. A little lower down, Vivian continues, quote, But nature is so uncomfortable, Grass is hard and lumpy and damp, and full of dreadful black insects. Why, even Morris's poorest workman could make you a more comfortable seat than the whole of nature can. If nature had been comfortable, mankind would never have invented architecture, 
and I prefer houses to the open air. In a house we all feel of the proper proportions. Everything is subordinated to us, fashioned for our use and our pleasure. Egotism itself, which is indoor life. Unquote. People have been wont to point to intentions as masterpieces of paradox. The truth is that these essays contain in paradoxical form Wilde's most orthodox creeds. The vigour with which he enunciates his opinions proceeds, no doubt, from the knowledge that there is much pretense, not to say hypocrisy, in the general definitions of what is good and beautiful. This hypocrisy stirred his indignation and gave impetus to his pen. What ordinary man or woman of the world really cares for nature in preference to urban haunts? What sincerity is there in the gushing rhapsodies about the beauties of the country to which it is fashionable to give utterance? How many times does the London dame or squire look up to the stars? End of chapter 5